Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks to Steve and to Simon and to you all for the opportunity to preach this evening. Um, it's my hope and prayer that what I've prepared from Psalm 5 is profitable for you and for us all as we continue our series, A Praying People. And we're in Psalm 5 this evening, so do have that open with you. And we're in Psalm 5 because it is so much to teach us of God's heart for our daily prayer lives. Psalm 5 instructs us in how we approach God daily. It teaches us more about his character and it fuels our rejoicing in the one in whom we find shelter, in whom we can take refuge. But before we launch into our text for this evening, let's take a moment just to reconsider what it is that we're seeking to do as we study these prayers found in God's word to us. And you're not alone tonight if, like me, you feel a little bit inadequate when you reflect on your daily prayer life. So many of us do, and that's why we're taking time in this series in the evenings of praying people to think carefully and intentionally about prayer. Because we acknowledge, don't we, that this is an area in which many of us can grow in our Christian lives. Our lives, they can look hyper busy, hyper connected, never a dull moment, always on the go. And this can make the discipline of regular daily morning prayer a real challenge for us. And while many of us recognize that we benefit immensely from sweet times of communion with God, life just seems to get in the way time and time again, doesn't it? So if that's resonating with you this evening, as it does for me, Psalm 5 has so much to say to us to reorientate our priorities and bring us back to regular fellowship with the one who gives attention to the sound of our cry. And another reason to take time to focus on the prayers of the Bible, which we're seeking to do in this summer series, and which we sought to do in our small groups, is because the prayers of the Bible, they, they provide us with content for our prayers. And again, if you're anything like me, you'll know the experience of being in a prayer meeting and sometimes struggling to know exactly what to pray for, what words to use. And so along with the many other prayers found in God's word, Psalm 5 too provides us with language, with content, with priorities for our prayers. And we can be confident that we can make use of the content found in the prayers of the Bible because the Bible's God's word to us. The scriptures are breathed out by God. They're, they're for correcting and teaching us as Paul wrote to Timothy. And so the prayers of the Bible, they teach us how to pray. So we can adopt the content of the prayers of the biblical authors, and we can rest assured that we are praying prayers that are in accordance with God's revealed will. And Psalm 5 wonderfully has lots of content and priorities that we can adopt and utilize in our own prayer lives. But graciously, Psalm 5 is also in our Bibles to encourage us. Psalm 5 encourages us that our God knows our needs even when we struggle to articulate them. And we'll see that we do not have to come to our God with perfectly crafted sentences. He considers our groanings that are too deep for words. So as we look at Psalm 5 together this evening, let's each be asking God to teach us to pray 
to restore us to a regular rhythm of prayerfulness and to enable us to rejoice as we take refuge and find shelter in him. So our little roadmap, um, our structure for tonight's message is this. We'll think firstly about what Psalm 5 teaches us about how we approach God, and we'll spend the lion's share of our time in point one, in case anyone gets worried that we're still in point one in 20 minutes' time. Um, And then we'll think about how Psalm 5 instructs us to submit to God in our prayers, and finally at how it encourages us to rejoice in God, in our prayer lives. So approaching God, submitting to God, rejoicing in God in our prayer lives. And hopefully that little roadmap will be helpful for you as we work our way through the text and see what God has for us here this evening. So the first section of this psalm teaches us a lot about our approach to God. Um, So look down with me at it. Um, But just before we derive some lessons for our own prayer lives, it's important that we think just for a moment about the context of this prayer. And you'll see in your Bibles there, this is a psalm of David, the little snippet of text preceding um, the psalm will highlight that in your Bibles. But as to where David was or what he was doing or what exactly was happening to him at the time that he wrote this psalm, we actually don't know. We're not told. He doesn't mention the specifics. I guess we can deduce that um, he was in some sort of trial and that he, find ref- he finds refuge in God, but the specifics, um, there's a lot of debate around those. And some commentators think it could be when David flees Jerusalem due to his son Absalom's rising popularity. And you can read about that period of history in Second Samuel chapters 15 to 18, but it's impossible to be sure exactly when this psalm was penned. And I suppose what that indicates is that the context of this prayer is less important for us than the content of this prayer, this psalm. The content of this psalm is instructive for us. It teaches us how we're to approach God, and it teaches us about his character. So let's look at the content of the psalm together. Now, have a look with me at verses 1 to 3, first of all, which read, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So there are a few things to note here about David's approach to God. The first is that David personally acknowledges the authority of the one to whom he is praying. And we see that in verse 2, don't we? David acknowledges God as his king and his God. David has a relationship with his God. And we see then in verse 3 that this prayer to his king and his God appears to be a morning routine for David. He prays and he highlights that in the morning, the Lord hears his voice. He makes a habit of regularly praying to his king and God in the morning. And God's word is packed with instruction for us to pray daily, isn't it? Daniel famously prays three times a day in Babylon. And Paul writes in many of his letters, 
to pray continually, and that is to remind his readers of the importance of remaining prayerful regularly and in all circumstances. So we see, don't we, that prayer should be a regular discipline for us, but we do know that this can be such a struggle, even when we know how sweet our times of prayer are. So let's each of us be allowing the blessings of daily prayer that we'll see in this psalm to bring us back to a habit of communing regularly with God as a priority in the midst of the busyness that many of us live with. So, so far we've seen that David has a personal relationship with his God. He addresses him as we can if we're believing in Jesus tonight as my king and my God. And he comes regularly before his God in the morning. In the morning, the Lord hears his voice. And look with me now just at the last phrase of verse 3 there. I think David uses some quite intriguing language here. He likens his approach to morning prayer to the preparation of a sacrifice. What's going on there? Well, from my reading, I found out that the word used here is the same word that was used for arranging the pieces of animal sacrifices on the altar in Leviticus 1.8 and for placing the loaves of bread on the table in the tabernacle in Leviticus 24. So really here, there is this sense of reverence and precision in this phrase that David uses to describe his morning prayer. Those were not duties that were taken lightly by Aaron or the priesthood in Leviticus. And David is comparing his approach to prayer to that of the priesthood arranging the sacrifices. So what we see for our prayer lives is that we ought not to come flippantly or hastily before our God in prayer, but we should approach him with due reverence that acknowledges his holiness. I'm not sure what's happening there, apologies. Um, So in verse 3, we also see that we can approach God in prayer expectantly. Um, We can approach him anticipating that he can and will answer our prayers. So look down at verse 3 with me again there. We see that David prepares a sacrifice of prayer and watches. And this word that's translated watch, watch, here is used elsewhere in the Old Testament of God's prophets who were stationed, ready to report and write of the first signs of God's answers to their prayers. And a wonderful example of this word watch appearing elsewhere in the Old Testament is found in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 1, where at the end of Habakkuk's second complaint, he writes, I take my stand at my watch post, and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And directly after that verse where Habakkuk says that he's going to watch and wait on the Lord's response, from Habakkuk 2 verse 2 comes the Lord's response to his prayer. And so we too can stand at our watch posts after we offer the sacrifice of our prayers. We can wait expectantly on our God to answer because our God is one who delights to answer our prayers. He delights to give good gifts to his children. We can pray with anticipation, with watchfulness expectantly because we are praying to to the one of whom his son Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. For everyone who asks receives, 
and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So we see that we can approach God expectantly in prayer, knowing that he is the giver of every good gift. But all of that said, we must pause here briefly and just note that God does not always answer our prayers in the ways that we might hope or expect. But we do know, don't we, that he's working in all things for the good of those who love him. Paul teaches us that in Romans 8. And so we can trust that he will answer our prayers in ways that bless us and are for our good, even if he doesn't answer them in the ways that we might hope. We can approach him in prayer expectantly and watch like David, because our God answers prayer. Uh, But looking further down the passage, we see that while we ought to approach God with reverence as we prepare a sacrifice of prayer as we discussed, Psalm 5 also teaches us that we can approach him with confidence. So look with me there at verse 7 now of Psalm 5, which reads, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. And we see here that gloriously, because of the steadfast love of God, we can enter his house, approaching his throne of grace in prayer with confidence. But to fully grasp the magnitude of this, we need to look at verse 7 with the preceding verses, verses 4 to 6. So let's read them together. So, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But... I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Brothers and sisters, this God that we approach in prayer is a holy God. He's a just judge. And because of his perfect moral character, the moral purity of his very being, sin is a total affront to him. And we see that in verses four to six, don't we? But we might be wondering, how can David call this God my king and my God? Isn't this the same David who committed adultery with Bathsheba and who murdered Uriah? David can enjoy a personal relationship with this God only because of this God's steadfast love towards him. And that is the same for us. We can only approach God in prayer because of the steadfast love that he has towards us. If he didn't have that towards us, we could not approach him in prayer because he is a holy God and we are a sinful people. But Psalm 147 verse 11, it teaches us that the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. And we see in verse 7 of this psalm that David approaches God with reverent fear. So the Lord bestows his steadfast love on those who reverently fear him. So it's important that we are reverently fearing our God tonight.
And linked to that, we read in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Those who seek the Lord in faith are those upon whom the Lord has bestowed his steadfast love. And so, brothers and sisters, for us, it is important that we are seeking God in faith. And if we're believing and trusting in Jesus this evening, we are those who receive and benefit from the steadfast love of God. If you're trusting in Jesus this evening, you can claim him as your great high priest, and through him, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, which is what the writer to the Hebrews teaches us in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. But coming back to Psalm 5, we see that we, like David, despite our sin, despite the lies we've spoken, the wrong things we have done, we can come before this God in prayer only because of his steadfast love towards us if we're trusting in him. And that's a great source of comfort to those of us who really feel the weight of our sin, isn't it? Because David committed what many of us would describe as significant and extensively sinful acts, but yet the Lord takes pleasure in David because he reverently fears him. So no matter how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about our pasts, we, with David, can bow down in prayer towards our God's holy temple in reverent fear and with confidence. Isn't that amazing? We can have this confidence because of the work of our great high priest, Jesus. He's enabled us through his accomplishments to receive the abundance of the steadfast love of the Father if we are trusting in him tonight. The last lesson on our approach to God that I wanted us to notice in this psalm is actually found back up in the first three lines of the psalm. And I think this is beautiful, what we notice here, and it really reveals the warmth of the heart of the Father towards his children. Look with me at the words that David uses just to describe the sounds that he makes towards the Lord in prayer. So if we start at verse one there, give ear to my words, number one. O Lord, consider my groaning, number two, and give attention to my cry, number three. So words, groanings, and cry. And I find that so liberating. We do not have to pray to God with words. He can consider our groanings, our cries, when we're in such a place of despair where we do not even have the words to articulate our pain, our longings, our anguish, our anguish, he hears our prayer. We have the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness. In the words of Romans 8, 26, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we see here in Psalm 5, we can come to our God authentically. We come to him as we are. He doesn't need us to be able to articulate our needs. He knows our needs. He can consider our groanings that are too deep for words. He gives attention to our cries, our tears, when we come to him in a place of sorrow and despair, just as David was here. So let's allow that truth 
to comfort us when we're in that place of darkness, when God can so often feel distant. He cares. He will answer when we pray from a place of sorrow, even if we can't find any actual words to use in our prayers. And so we see that Psalm 5 teaches us so much about how we can approach our God in prayer, doesn't it? We can approach God personally. He's my king, my God, your king, your God, if you're trusting in him this evening. And we are like David to approach him daily, morning by morning, making prayer a regular occurrence in our lives. And in our regular prayers, we approach God with reverence, acknowledging our holiness, the fact that we can only come before him because of the accomplishments of our Savior. We approach him expectantly, trusting him to answer in accordance with his will. And we can approach him confidently because of the steadfast love that we receive through the work of our great high priest. And then finally, we can approach him authentically, coming before him as we are, with no need for complex theological language, no need for carefully crafted sentences in our prayers, no need for words at all in our prayers. But we're going to come now to consider what Psalm 5 teaches us about submitting to God in our daily prayers. And we have to be careful what we ask for prayer for, don't we? Um, I think it would raise some eyebrows among you all, I'm sure, or I hope it would anyway, if I asked you to pray that God would prompt my wife Anna to take me to a Formula One race for my 30th birthday next year. Um, Now, I promise that's not meant to be a hint to Anna, um, but it's meant to demonstrate that in addition to that being quite an irreverent prayer, I, wanna, I want us to recognize that we, we do feel quite deeply that there are certain things that we shouldn't be praying for. We have this innate sense that we ought to be striving to be praying in line with the will of God. And I don't think God's particularly interested in my 30th birthday, but he is interested in my character and in my relationship with him. As Christians, we recognize that we are not our own. We ought to submit to our king, to our creator, and to his will. And so we recognize that we should pray with the same posture as Jesus in Gethsemane. We pray, not my will, but your will be done. And Psalm 5 teaches us that. We should pray too, as Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And our daily prayers should be those that demonstrate that we submit to the will of our God. And we see that posture here in Psalm 5 in David's prayer. And we see that in verse 8 in particular. So if you glance down at that with me, where David prays that he would be led by God in righteousness. He prays that the Lord would be the one directing his way. Um, making straight his way, the Lord's way, before David. Notice that it's not David's way, but the Lord's way. He prays, make straight your way before me. So we too, when we are facing trials, like David appears to have been here, we should pray with a spirit of submission that acknowledges that he is the one who establishes our steps, who plots a way through our trials for us. But we see in Psalm 5 another very significant area in which we must entrust ourselves to the Lord, and that is the area of his justice and his judgment. 
And in verse 10 in particular, we see that David appears to be praying for the judgment of God to fall on his enemies. But notice with me who these enemies have rebelled against. These are not people who have merely upset David. These are people who have rebelled against God himself. So let's read verses 8 to 10 again, and we'll notice that. So David prays, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of their abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. And we notice here that David is praying for God's judgment to fall on those who rebel against him. And sometimes we can struggle to know what to do with a prayer like this, but it is much to teach us about what praying to a holy God who is perfectly just and who judges rightly can look like. And C.S. Lewis suggested that we struggle with prayers like this sometimes because we don't hate sin enough to get upset at the wickedness and godlessness around us. We're exposed to such evil and violence in the media so often that we've been numbed and desensitized to just how ugly evil really is in this world. We should be deeply moved by evil around us, and the Lord expects those of us who love him to love what he loves, but to hate what he hates. The first bit of Psalm 97, verse 10, I find helpful here, uh, and the psalmist writes there, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. And Paul teaches us in Romans 12, verse 9, that Christian believers, we are to let love be genuine, to abhor what is evil, and to hold fast to what is good. Evil is a terrible scourge on God's creation. It ruins the lives of those around us, and it captures people for hell. So we shouldn't feel uncomfortable about despising the evil we see in this world. We do have biblical precedent for doing so, but we need to come to God with our anguish. He is the one who judges justly, not us. And so we need to submit to him as the righteous, holy, morally pure judge of all. And it is worth pausing here briefly and noting something else, just about the character of our God as we consider his response to evil. While our God is one who rightly avenges evil, he's not quick to punish the wayward. We read elsewhere in the Psalms, don't we, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, and he's rich in love. And Peter beautifully and helpfully teaches us in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is patient towards us, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think these verses teach us that while our holy God rightly punishes sin, and we see that he does that here in verses 4 to 6 and verses 9 and 10, our God is mercifully slow to anger, and he's patient with us even in our rebellion against him. So how does this inform our approach to our daily prayers? Well, as we consider the things that cause us anguish, both personal circumstances 
and awful things going on in the world around us, we bring them before God in prayer and we humbly submit to him in all things. We pray that his will would be done and that he would restrain evil. In our prayers to adjust God, we give thanks to him for our governing authorities, those entrusted with maintaining law and order, with limiting evil in our society. Romans 13 teaches us that those authorities have been given authority by God for our good. We praise God that he is a God who takes sin seriously. Our God does not turn a blind eye to the victim who's been hurt by the oppressor. He cares deeply for the victim, and he will one day right every wrong. So in our daily prayers, we come before God with a posture of submission, asking him to make his way straight before us, helping us to submit to his will in our trials. And then we come trusting in him to execute his perfect justice upon a broken world. We bring the broken situations in the world before him, thanking him that he cares deeply about right and wrong and that he will one day come to judge perfectly and he'll come one day to wipe away every tear from our eyes. But we come now to our final section um, and to the final two verses of Psalm 5. And there's so much for us here that is so encouraging. And we see here that in our daily prayers, even when we find ourselves in that place of anguish like the psalmist, we can rejoice in God who is a refuge for us. So let's read verses 11 and 12 again together. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And we see here in verse 11 that those who take refuge in God can rejoice. There is true joy for those who take refuge in this God. And we see that that true joy is found in the protection of God. The Lord spreads his protection over those who love his name. But notice with me too in verse 11, because of the Lord's protection over us, we, as those who love the name of the Lord, can exult and delight in him. So we see here, don't we, that those who take refuge in the Lord are those who love his name. So it's important to ask ourselves this evening, do we love the name of the Lord? Can you identify yourself as one who loves God's name? And some of you will recall our recent series on the Trinity when we thought about the blessings of being baptized, being enfolded into the triune name. And our baptism points to the triune nature of all the benefits we enjoy as Christians. We can delight and find hope in the Father's love, the redemptive work of the Son, the indwelling, sanctifying work of the Spirit. And we thought in that series, didn't we, about how it should be our goal as Christians to increasingly live in the goodness of that triune name that we have received. It should be our goal as Christians to love the triune name into which we have been baptized, shouldn't it? So let's be those who consider regularly in our prayer time all of the benefits that come from being baptized into the triune name. 
let's be those who love the name of the Lord in our prayer time. And there's so much about that name for us to love, isn't there? We will never plumb the depths. And there's so much in that name for us to take refuge in, to find shelter in, to find hope and strength in. So in our daily prayers, we can rejoice because we're praying to one with an incredible name, a name that confers so many blessings to us in the work of the three persons of the Godhead. And then there are more reasons for us to rejoice in our prayers in verse 12. And we see in verse 12 that the Lord blesses the righteous. So the Lord blesses the righteous. So we have to ask, who are the righteous? Doesn't Paul teach in Romans 3 verse 10 that none are righteous? No, not one. And as we consider our own sinfulness, the state of our own hearts, we can be left disheartened here, can't we? You know, we don't feel particularly righteous. However, gloriously as Christians, as those trusting in Jesus as our Savior tonight, we have received a righteousness. And so we can enjoy the Lord's blessing here with the psalmist in verse 12. Because remember how Paul writes in Philippians 3, verses 8 to 9, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So as Christians here tonight, brothers and sisters, we receive a righteousness from God through faith. And because of that righteousness given to us in God's grace, not because of anything we have done, because of that righteousness, we can receive and rejoice in the blessing that David describes here in verse 12 of Psalm 5. And we see in verse 12 what this blessing involves. It involves the Lord covering us with favor as with a shield. Do you see that there in verse 12? And we see similar language just a few psalms back in Psalm 3, verse 3, where the psalmist prays, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Our God lifts our head in our trials. He protects us. He's a shield about us. When we're praying from a place of despair in the midst of a difficult time, we can rejoice because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. No matter how challenging that trial we're facing is, he is a shield around us and nothing can separate us from his love. Just as Paul writes in Romans 8, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is a shield about us. Nothing can separate those who are in Christ from his love. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Isn't that reason to rejoice in our trials this evening? So as we look to draw all of this together and bring our message to a close this evening, I trust that we've seen something of how Psalm 5 has so much to teach us about our approach to daily prayer. We, like David, can and should approach God personally, regularly, reverently, expectantly, 
confidently and authentically in our daily prayers. We submit to God in our trials personally, and we submit to him as we look around us at a broken world, trusting him to do what is right because he has perfect perspective on right and wrong. And in our daily prayers, we rejoice in God because he protects us. He has a name in which we can forever delight and he blesses us with a righteousness that can be ours because of the accomplishments of Christ Jesus our Lord. So this week, let's seek to approach God in our daily prayers afresh. Let's seek to submit to his perfect ways and to rejoice in all of his goodness to us, his people. So let's do that just now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that in your Son, Jesus, we can indeed approach you in prayer. Thank you that you're a God who delights for us to come to you in prayer. We praise you that we can come before you, a holy God, because of the accomplishments of your Son, Jesus. Thank you so much for all the blessings that we enjoy in him alone. Thank you that you're a shield about us, our protector and our helper in time of need. Lord, we want to be those who increasingly love your name. Help us to be those who increasingly delight in you and are increasingly hungry to come before you regularly in daily prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Um, Well, we're going to sing our final song now, In Christ Alone. And this song is packed with wonderful truths that are ours because of the accomplishments of Jesus. So let's give our praise and thanks to him now, and we'll stand as the musicians start.
Uh, do you have a seat? Uh, we'll close with the grace. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.